If you looked carefully at the uh, list of the topics in Sundays in July for this year, uh, and you looked with a certain amount of discernment, you'll know that a number of the topics dealt with the issue of the Christian and social justice. Uh, as this is the 50th anniversary of the year that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, there was a substantial amount of interest within the church in America uh, on that particular topic. Uh, some of the issues that were articulated, uh, I had to remember Dr. MacArthur's uh, analogy to grape nuts. It's not grapes, it's not nuts. He originally applied it to Christian science. Well, much of what I was hearing being talked about in terms of social justice was neither social. You could not maintain an operating society based on some of those ideas, nor was it justice by any proper, carefully and precisely defined biblical approach. Uh, so you'll want to pick up on a number of the sessions uh, Carl Hargrove did one last week. He's also having a Q&A session today with Mike Riccardi, uh, Han Cho, and himself. Uh, I did two before today. The first one was in the first Sunday in July where I talked about a, uh, an, a, an article described in Scripture. We captioned it, probably the greatest Old Testament hero you never heard of. Uh, it speaks as succinctly to the topic as any passage that I've ever come across in all of Scripture. And then last week, uh, we had a session where we were talking about the believers and government, part one. Uh, we took a look at some of the key passages, both in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, defining the responsibility of the believer uh, we laid out some of the issues that needed to be thought through, some of the historical incidents where the church had called the state to be what the state should be. Uh, there were a number more that I could have, uh, I could have addressed. We did not, but we also looked at some of the areas where the state calls the church to be what it should be. And that is not inappropriate, that is not outside the realm of what we as Bible-believing Christians should consider acceptable. Uh, we also had, uh, I went through 10 hypotheticals, 10 hypotheticals that were considered uh, in an effort to try to prompt our thinking. Peter tells us uh, at the beginning of 1 Peter 1 that we're to gird our minds for action, we're to get dressed uh, and be both mentally and physically ready to engage carefully, properly, and in a Christ-honoring manner with our culture and with our society. So we looked at 10 hypotheticals. I had a chance to, I think, answer one, maybe two questions, uh, and then we had to wrap it up for the day. What we're going to look at today as a continuance of that the church and the government, believers and the state, part two. We want to look at three key questions, three key areas that we as believers need to be aware of 
to some extent, the takeaway from this is only going to be uh, a much greater understanding of what we're dealing with, what we're contending with, who we need to speak to in this particular process. The last, however, will be something that intimately concerns all of us. The three questions by way of introduction. The Establishment Clause. You may have heard of the wall of separation between church and state. Okay? It's questionable in my mind whether we're going to be able to survive ourselves partly because the issue of the wall of separation between church and state, the Establishment Clause. Uh, I will take the position that this is probably the greatest unresolved legal issue of our time and perhaps of any time for that particular matter. The second question, the second issue that we have to be aware of is the increasing complexity of government. The increasing complexity of government. Why is that important for us as believers to know and understand? Because we need to know and understand the sources of potential threats because we need to know and understand the sources of potential opportunities. We also need to know and understand who it is that we are speaking with. Sometimes we as believers can tend to take uh, a role of saying we shouldn't be dealing with that. Government shouldn't be doing that. It shouldn't have this structure or position. And in so doing, we overlook the adage uh, which I've not, if I'm not mistaken, goes back to an old Yiddish maxim. It is what it is. And we can spend so much time arguing that this shouldn't be the case that we distract ourselves from doing what we can in recognition of the fact that it is what it is. We have to deal with the government as it has shaped up in our time. Last and not least... And then this goes back to the original topic that I was mentioning earlier. Uh, there is a certain angst. There is a certain uncertainty, certain anxiety on the part of many in the church over just what it is that we are to be doing. So we want to walk through these points. I was reminded yesterday, I, my wife and I uh, serve in the Alzheimer's support ministry. Uh, that we have here at Grace Church. And one of the people there uh, was gracious enough to uh, commend the session last week and indicated that she found a little bit of it was over her head. I reminded myself of a maxim that uh, J. Vernon McGee used to repeatedly say, you have to put the cookies in the reach of the children. So this morning, between chasing the dogs around the house while we were trying frantically to get ready to come to church, I had my iPhone, my iPad out, and was trying to simplify. Uh, so what I'm putting up on the screen this morning is really a simplified version. Uh, and if it isn't clear, indicate later, and I may be able to amplify by some of the material that I deleted. So without further ado, let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, I thank you for what you have done in the lives of each of these individuals. 
I thank you for the way that you have given us salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the way that you have given us the unity of the bond of the Spirit. Father, I pray that we would keep that unity in mind, that we would give grace to one another in this area that we're considering. And Father, I pray that you would allow the time that we spend together to better equip each and every one of us to be salt and light in years to come. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and exalted in all things. Even now be with us. Amen. All right, we will go through these materials. Time permitting at the end, uh, we'll have opportunity for questions and answers. So if something strikes you as not clear, maybe something you want to uh, question, write it down on a note sheet. Uh, ask the question later. I will reserve the right to say, hopefully more tactfully than I may have been last week, is there a question there? Um, on occasion, and it would never happen here, sometimes people want to launch into a narrative when in fact really a question is what's in order at this point in time. All right, three crucial problems that exist. And this is part two of the believer in government, so it is a little bit more down the road from what we were talking about last week. What you have in front of you here on the screen is the text of the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. Amendment number one, we know this in the Bill of Rights, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Uh, as my students, and one of them is here today, know that when I teach through the First Amendment, I'll use the acronym GRASP. Grievance, religion, assembly, speech, and press. Okay, if that helps, there are two religion clauses, the free exercise clause and the clause that we're concerned with right now this morning, uh, and that is the establishment clause. This was enacted to the United States Constitution as part of the first uh, series of amendments it had been enacted in response to a substantial uh, current that was taking place during the American Revolution. At least one historian has pointed out uh, that some of the people that fought in support of the revolution did so precisely because of at least an implicit offer uh, that had been extended that they would be getting rid of the established churches at some point uh, and that was crucial in enlisting some of the support, particularly down in the southern portion of the United States. Now, shortly after the beginning of his presidency, uh, a group in Connecticut known as the Danbury Baptist Association. There are those Baptists again. The Danbury Baptist Association gathers together and in late 1801, uh, they write a letter 
uh, expressing concern to uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was then the President of the United States. Jefferson, in a very significant response, monumental, uh, and here is the text excerpted from his letter. He writes, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislature would, quote, make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, end of quote, thus building a wall of separation between the church and state. Now, it has been uh, protested by uh, people here at Grace Church, some of whom have talked to me, come up and uh, approached me after a discussion of this, <coughs> that the phrase, the wall of separation between church and state, is not in the Constitution. It is not in the text of the First Amendment, and they are quite right. However, Jefferson, in his analysis of the two religion clauses and their effect, articulates the position that a wall of separation had been created. Now, in two cases, 1878, Reynolds versus United States, in which the uh, court was dealing with the challenge of uh, polygamy on the part of Mormons, and in the case of McCollum versus Board of Education in 1948, that phrase was cited with approval by the opinion of the court. And as a practical matter, the effect of that taking place is that the phrase has in fact been incorporated into the content of United States constitutional law. Like it or not, that phrase is there. It is part of the constitutional law that we have to deal with. So the concept uh, does have a certain amount of validity. And to a degree, uh, if you think about it, we all want a certain amount of separation between church and state. We don't want the state to be telling us with exact prime specificity which view of the Trinity we have to hold. Uh, which view of sanctification is most biblical, nor do we want the church to be dictating every minute detail of how the state or local law enforcement is going to conduct its business. The problem that will emerge is to what extent is that wall of separation permeable? Can we go through it? Can we influence each other? Uh, and to what extent is that wall an insurmountable barrier? And there is the rub. There is the issue that Americans for the last 200 years have been discussing. Now, the historical context of this has to be kept in mind. What were we talking about? In the wake of the Reformation, uh, there was a level of persecution in Europe and to some extent uh, in America that literally defies our imagination. Catholics, and I think uh, I would come from the position that would hold that Catholics by and large took the great lead in this, 
Uh, Galatians tells us that those who uh, act out of legalism will continually persecute those who uh, their basis for salvation is in faith and faith alone. Catholics persecuted Protestants. We would be less than candid if we did not also admit that Protestants persecuted Catholics. With the death penalty being used on both parts. Uh, Probably one of the greatest examples of this, and I mentioned this last week, was the massacre on St. Bartholomew's Day in France, August 1572, I believe it was. Uh, That is the leading part of a period of about 100 years of persecution within the country of France that really led to an absolutely huge, colossal brain drain Uh, that benefited the United States, that benefited Switzerland, benefited South Africa, but from which France has never fully recovered. The blood of Huguenot martyrs ran in the waters of Paris and throughout France for a long period of time. There was persecution in England. There was persecution in Scotland. Persecution in Germany as well. And in fact, there was also persecution of Protestants by Protestants, uh, recognizing a challenge to the culture. Uh, The Reformed and Lutheran Protestants both uh, persecuted that group known as the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists, and we would agree with their view on baptism, we would not necessarily agree with their view on the state. Uh, The Anabaptists were a very mixed bag. You had some uh, that were very godly people and their spiritual descendants are with us today. Uh, If any of you have a Mennonite or Amish heritage, your line of lineage goes back to that period of time. Many godly people. There were some, however, uh, that pushed the envelope into the realm of insanity uh, and rejected any and all authority other than what they felt that the Spirit was illuminating them with at a particular moment in time. Um, We don't need to go into any particular details on that other than to know and be aware that this did occur. It was not uncommon for people to lose property, for people to be left destitute, and in some cases, uh, as I mentioned earlier, dead. Uh, as a result of this. The types of execution were such uh, that they were barbaric. Again, we don't need to go into all the details, uh, but it is sufficient to know that this was at the mind, this was in the mind of many of the people uh, when the Establishment Clause was being considered. And this is to some extent personal. I had a multiple great-grandfather. He's known to history as Elder John Kuntz. He was a primitive Baptist pastor in Shenandoah, Virginia, both before and after the time of the American Revolution. Uh, I have seen the type of makeshift jail that he and others of his type uh, could count on being imprisoned within. On his grave marker, The inscription is, no primitive Baptist preacher suffered more at the hands of opposers. No primitive Baptist preacher surpassed him in his devotion to his Lord and his people. 
I understand from what my ancestor went through what led to people feeling that we had to establish or we had to enact the Establishment Clause, this wall of separation. State-supported churches existed in the colonies. The Anglican Church in Virginia would be supported by taxes. Uh, Similarly, up in the uh, New England colonies, you had uh, state-run churches, state-supported churches. We're all familiar with Roger Williams in the dead of winter having to leave colonial Massachusetts And he goes out, and the historical record is clear that he founds the colony of modern-day Rhode Island, doing so precisely in response to this state-supported, officially sanctioned government church. But the issue that can be overlooked is that at that particular time, the American colonial culture centered around the Judeo-Christian scripture. All of the existing religions that existed at that particular time, uh, in one form or another, were defined by the scripture. If you were an atheist, you were an atheist who rejected the Judeo-Christian deity and the authority of the Judeo-Christian scripture, the Bible. If you were Jewish, you held to a portion of that, If you were Roman Catholic, you again held to a particular version of that. Uh, If you were Protestant, uh, high church, Anglican, nonconformist, Baptist, Methodist, one form or another, it all was defined in reference to the Hebrew, Judeo-Christian, and Greek scriptures. Okay, We can lose sight of that, and it's very important that we not do so. Really what led to the Establishment Clause in the Constitution was a rejection on the part of our culture, on the part of our uh, forefathers, of the idea that there would be an an official state-sanctioned, state-supported church uh, in any of these particular United States. Now if that is all that would take place, uh, we might say, okay, this is great. However, our forefathers do not seem to have totally understood or anticipated the change that has taken place in the American nation over the last 200 years. The underlying problem of this, and I have on your screen four verses from a familiar passage in Scripture, This is the introduction to the uh, Ten Commandments. And if you look at the pattern of this, if you look at the pattern of this, you see the initial outline from Scripture of the problem that has emerged and that we deal with today. Verse number one, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And verse 12 of Exodus chapter 20, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. There is a structure, there is a pattern 
to the Ten Commandments uh, that we can lose sight of. First of all, God defines himself to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is a reminder that he is the God who gave the ten plagues. He is the God who initiated the Passover. He is the God who killed the firstborn of all of the people in Egypt who did not have the blood on the doorpost. He is the God, and this is repeatedly brought up in the Old Testament and in the Psalms, He is the God who parted the Red Sea. He is the God who divided the sea so that all of Israel could walk across safely and survive. And he is the God who brought the sea back over the pursuing armies of Pharaoh so that none of them survived. But he reminds them who he is. I am the God who had announced myself to Moses in the burning bush. I am who I am. First of all, he defines himself. He reminds people who he is. He is the God uh, who had informed Moses that he was great in compassion, and yet he does not allow the guilty to go without punishment when he passed in front of Moses hidden in the rock. Secondly, Because of that, there are obligations that we have towards God. We're to have no other gods before him. Uh, We're not to take his name in vain. We are familiar with those. We've heard them since we were in Sunday school. They compose what we would refer to as the first tablet of the Ten Commandments. Only after those two things are in place... Only after those two places uh, have been dealt with in the form of the law does he address the issue that we all too often tend to preoccupy ourselves with, and that is the relationship of man to man. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That is the first of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments pointing out again the structure. Incidentally, uh, when the reformers were wrestling with the issue of the believer's obligation to the government, they looked to and modeled our obligation to the government on the believer's obligation to his parents. So you'll find that used as a departing source uh, in many of the writings of Calvin and others Uh, on the question of just what allegiance does the believer owe to his parents. Uh, And they use that actually to justify some things that we might find questionable uh, and somewhat difficult to understand. Again, the structure is God defines himself, then he indicates the nature of the obligations owed to him by people. Finally, after that, and only after that, does he discuss the relationship of the believer to each other and of the believer to government. So the structure of that is significant. It needs to be kept in mind. And as we will note over the course of time, uh, you'll note this empirically. You'll note this within the people that God has brought into your lives. You'll note this as well on 
a macro scale within the culture, within the society, people tend to act, people tend to act in a manner consistent with their understanding of the nature of God. Uh, about 13 years ago, I was serving with a man here who uh, was also an elder here at Grace Church. And one tragic morning, it came to light to the rest of the elders that he had disqualified himself by being involved in a prolonged affair. Talking with him later, I asked him, okay, possibly to reduce this from happening again in the lives of other elders here, other pastors, could you pinpoint something that prompted that to get started? He thought about it, and then he said to me, he said, I forgot that God was omniscient. I forgot that God was omnipresent. Okay? We, even staunch Bible-believing Christians, can become practical atheists and forget that God sees what we're doing at all times, and he is aware of every thought before they even come into the beginning of our minds. And if that is true of us as individuals, it should come as no surprise. But that is also true of people in a given culture. It is true of people uh, in terms of their conduct. They will flow, that conduct will inevitably flow, easy for me to say, uh, from their perspective on the nature, the composition, the character of the deity that has been revealed to them in their thinking. Whether it is demonic or in origin or not, their thinking will define their conduct. The second thing that needs to be point, pointed out, uh, last week we looked at 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, and Romans 13, 1 through 7. Those are the two most significant passages in all of the New Testament concerning the believer and the believer's relationship to government. But it defines the government first as being God's agent, the agent of the God of the Bible, with the responsibility of commending that which is good and punishing that which is evil. Everybody remember that who was here last time? Uh, the government is God's agent for good. He is the government is supposed to command, to reward those who have engaged in, in good conduct. Uh, one of the men here this morning was asked if I would be talking about the sword. Romans 13 makes it very clear uh, that the government has use of the sword. It has the ability to engage in capital punishment, to engage in other type punishment, for the punishment of that which is evil. Nobody has a problem with this, right? The question, very significant question, where do you derive your concept of that which is good? Where do you develop the content of what you consider social good, the good that should be commended by the government? And where do you derive your concept of that which is socially evil? Where do you develop your idea of what conduct 
is blameworthy within a particular society. And one of you has already anticipated the only obvious answer that that comes, that from which that will come. My friend up here held up his Bible. Um, you will derive inevitably your concept of what is good from your concept of the nature of deity. You will derive your concept of that which is evil from the concept of that deity as well. And particularly from whatever bodies of writing have been articulated in your religious background or tradition as authoritative. Okay? This is extremely significant in this particular area because it lays in focus the challenge that the Establishment Clause has given to us in this particular day and age. How does this translate into a polytheistic society? Polytheistic basically meaning that we have a society, we have a culture that in many ways is characterized by a number of diverse underlying religious perspectives. I look around and I can see people from different ethnic backgrounds. God has drawn to himself and will continue to do that, Revelation tells us, people from every diverse culture and background. So this is not directed at ethnic backgrounds, ethnic cultures per se. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God made of one all men, all women, in this world. We should not ever consider that there is more than one race, the human race. Where there are different ethnic backgrounds. But in many cases, those ethnic backgrounds are going to be characterized by uh, a relative high percentage of individuals holding to a different theological background. America today, and this has been the case since uh, the late 1950s, if not earlier, we have a substantial number of people who are Hindu, who are Indian in cultural background. We have people who still, uh, and I think this is going to be increasingly a problem, hold to the theology of Islam. America has individuals who are animists. In one form or another, you'll find this in areas where uh, Santeria or voodoo takes place or is held out. Buddhists. My best friend in high school, uh, played football with him, was Japanese. Within the Japanese community here in America, the Japanese community center typically is also the Buddhist temple. Just up the street, we have a similar situation. Uh, the Cambodian community in this area, in many ways, will center and focus around a Buddhist temple. That's within less than four blocks from here, folks. Evolutionists. Evolutionists. We have been fighting this battle uh, since the time of Charles Darwin. Evolutionists hold to the idea, if you have not bothered to think this through, that God is an impersonal being who essentially directs the process of the development of the fittest, the survival of the fittest, uh, both in humankind as well as in 
as well as in all other species of plants and animals. Uh, and there is some extent of truth uh, over the course of time in a particular culture, in a particular area. Those people who have a gene pool that allow them to meet the challenges may be more likely to survive. Okay? So there is a sense in which we see the process of natural selection taking place. However, the underlying perspective on deity is not that of the Hebrew, Greek, Judeo-Christian scriptures. Uh, it is far from that. We also are dealing with the prevalence, and this is increasingly the case, of what we would know today as an existential humanist, most notably characterized by John Paul Sartre. Sartre, in a lecture he gave in 1945, described existentialism, quote, as the attempt to draw all the consequences, the attempt to draw all the consequences from a position of consistent atheism, end of quote. The idea there is that man exists, man is alone, he defines his essence, he is not obligated to any higher power. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the consistent behavior of mankind is going to be uh, that he will conduct himself in a manner consistent with and growing out of his concept of the nature of the deity. If you believe that the deity is a multifaceted entity, a multipersonal entity, overviewing, overseeing the process of reincarnation, by which over the course of multiple periods of existence you advance into a form of perfection, uh, the process of sati that I talked about last week will make a certain amount of sense. If you weren't here last week, sati uh, was the practice in Hindu India where a woman, uh, after her husband had died and while he was in the process of being burned, his remains, she would allow herself to be burned alive along with him. If the deity again <laughs> supervises the process of reincarnation and if she builds up a certain amount of virtue while doing so, the practice makes a certain amount of sense, right? If you adhere to the Quran and the deity that is described in there, which is much different than the God described in the Bible, it may make sense if an individual steals a loaf of bread because he's hungry and he is unfortunate enough to get caught to take a sword and strike off his hand at the wrist. If, and I point this out to my class in law and public policy at the college, if you grow up in a culture in which the deity is an impersonal force overseeing the process of evolution, it may make sense to systematically eliminate from your gene pool those who may have a birth defect, those who may have been born with Down syndrome, those who may have been in a group of people that you consider to be subhuman, 
it may make sense, and most definitely it does make sense if that is the perspective from which you begin. Rape, you're just increasing the strength of the gene pool. Murder, why punish it if you're just getting rid of some of the weaker people in the society? Now, if you thought about it, if you picked up on this, some of you probably have, this describes much of what happened in Nazi Germany during the reign of Adolf Hitler. People will live out the consequences of the doctrine they have of God Almighty. Question that we have to deal with today in deciding cases, in deciding what a government can or cannot do, first question is, which concept of deity is to be considered? Uh, if you've ever taken the time to read through the actual decision of Roe versus Wade, uh, and it is an exercise that really is uh, potentially productive, uh, you'll find that Justice Blackman, when he was writing that decision for the court, does precisely that. He goes and he looks through a variety of religious traditions trying to address the question of when is an unborn fetus viable? Uh, I don't know that any of us are terribly happy with how he finally ended up, but it illustrates the fact that our courts are given that particular challenge uh, by virtue of the existence of the Establishment Clause. Now, uh, as I have up here on the screen, deliberately by some, there are people within our culture, and this is nothing new. Uh, you'll find them also referred to as early as the book of Job. Uh, there are people who say, what profit is it to us of God? We're going to do our own thing. We're going to do what seems right to us. The book of Judges talks about in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Nothing new. We have increasingly uh, the phenomena that a number of people within our culture are wanting to jettison any impact of God from culture, from American public life, and from American law. Unfortunately, uh, probably a much greater portion are those who, by virtue of the polytheistic environment that we deal with, just by default, also join in that particular approach. We can't pick, we think, uh, between the deity of Islam, the deity of Christianity, the deity of uh, Judaism, so we're just going to take a posture in their own thinking that none of them should be considered. We're going to try to develop law uh, without the influence of any religion whatsoever. And that, as we're already seeing, creates problems in and of itself. But by default, we move in the direction of the existential humanist. Now, uh, how is it that believers, if you're an attorney assigned to represent a biblical position in a court, if you are a legislator 
trying to advocate a biblical standard and see to it that it becomes law, what is it that you can do in that kind of a context? You can't say, thus saith the Lord. You can't resurrect the line that uh, Elijah says to Ahab, thus saith the Lord of hosts, you shall not or you shall do something. My students know that to some degree, lawyers, legislators, people in government have two approaches that they can pursue. Natural law, Romans chapter 2 tells us that the mind and heart of man, God's law has been written therein. The only problem is that, in the words of John Calvin, our understanding of that innate mind law of God, natural law, is that when the fall occurred, our comprehension of that law was reduced to what he refers to as a shapeless ruin. We know enough, we know enough to condemn ourselves, but our comprehension of that natural law has been reduced to the point that we cannot save ourselves. And it's in mercy as a result of that that God gave the written scriptures. Nonetheless, to some degree, uh, over the course of the centuries, believers have and can continue to argue that natural law tells us that there is something wrong with a man executing a couple of teenagers and then in cold blood eating their french fries and drinking their soda uh, And this actually occurred some years back here in California. Uh, We know that by natural law, and to a degree we can argue that, uh, both in the courts and in the uh, houses of government in our society. The other source that we take is the source of arguing the social advantage. Along the lines of reasoning that God defined us, he created us, He ought to know how we best will run. I've heard some evangelistic uh, proclamations that basically go along that line, and there's a certain amount of validity there. So we, without citing Scripture, will argue that the best environment for a child is to have a mom and dad that love each other, a dad that is providing the income, a mom that is maintaining the home, We talk about being pro-family, family values. This is where that is coming out of. We argue the social benefit of that, and we should. No problem with that. That is a tried and true tactic. The only problem, the only problem with that was seen a couple of years ago. Uh, If you have the uh, experience of knowing some same-sex couples, you may find that in some ways they provide a more tranquil environment, a more stable environment, than some of the heterosexual married couples that you've seen. On my cul-de-sac, we had one family. That marriage, heterosexual, has since broken up. Next to them is a couple that would be defined otherwise. A certain much greater stability exists in that relationship. So to a degree, these two approaches were found lacking. 
by the U.S. Supreme Court in issuing the, in issuing the decision of Obergfell versus Hodge, holding up uh, the constitutionality of same-sex marriage. And I'll put it deliberately in quotes uh, because we hold to the truth that marriage uh, is between a man and a woman. Okay? We have to be careful. You may have heard this saying, be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Uh, I would take the position that to some degree what we saw on the issuance of that decision is the consequence of the Establishment Clause in the way that it was articulated, in the way that it was defined, and in the way that it has been fleshed out over the last two centuries. Unresolved questions. And I'll just mention this. We don't want to take too much time in this area. How big is the wall of separation? How permeable is the wall of separation? Does the separation between church and state translate into, quote, equal hostility, end of quote? Or does it translate into even-handed, benevolent accommodation? Uh, and some, some scholars will actually define and put a scale together by which Supreme Court justices will be evaluated going from one of those extremes to the other. How does a society without a theological base withstand prolonged combat with a theologically based society? This should have been brought to the attention of all of us on the morning of September 11, 2001, when some Islamic extremists, not so extreme when you view the doctrine, uh, crashed into the World Trade Center skyscrapers in New York City, killing more people at one time uh, than had been killed in the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. There is a sense in which the Western world is in conflict with an Islamic culture, multinational. Uh, we've created nations out of some of those locations, and to some degree, some of the leading forces in that conflict are not national in basis. But the question that is raised, and this is a culture that is theologically based, how will we be able to withstand that conflict going forward? The last thing that I have written up here, and it is something that I'm extremely concerned about, if you look carefully at biblical human rights, they derive from God's concern that government and people not interfere with his desired relationship of intimacy with his own people. Leviticus 25, you shall not oppress one another. You shall not oppress the slaves within your community because I am the Lord your God. I do not want you to interfere with my relationship with my people. You look carefully, that ultimately is where biblical human rights will come from. If government is accountable only to itself, if the existential humanist view triumphs, that man is alone and man is accountable only to what he wants to do, uh, 
we will deal with the position that I think was attributed to William Penn where he said, we will either be governed by tyrants or we will be governed by God. I am very concerned that if we do not develop and obtain some clarity, greater clarity in this particular area, the future of human rights in the United States is extremely questionable. What is the call? And for each of these three questions, I finish with a call. The Establishment Clause needs to be recognized as probably the greatest unresolved legal, social, and spiritual issue of our time. God willing, scholars will emerge and be raised up, uh, people understanding the discipline of history, people understanding the discipline of political science, political studies, men and women called to work in the area of government and in the area of law that can allow us to rethink what the law should be on this particular area. Uh, Justice Scalia, and I'm by no means a fan of Scalia, based on the way that he wrote and on some of his decisions, uh, I think made a very significant step in the right direction. He issued a dissenting opinion in the 2005 case involving McCreary County uh, versus the ACLU. It was one of the Ten Commandments cases. And Justice Scalia pointed out that the position of the forefathers was essentially that culture was a monotheistic culture. He points out that it was Judeo-Christian. He also, and I think unfortunately, includes uh, the Islamic perspective as well in that group. Uh, but he points out that we do not necessarily need, based on uh, our cultural background, need to grant the same deference to the existential humanist position or to the polytheistic animist position. So those of you that uh, are working in that particular area, Justice Scalia's decision in McCreary County versus ACLU is probably a good start. Second challenge, the increasing complexity of government. Uh, this is going to be somewhat academic, so bear with me. Uh, hear it out. Consider it. Believe me now. Or hear me now and believe me later, as the uh, line once went. Uh, we expect that the legislature is going to pass the laws. We expect that the executive branch, the president or the governor at the local level, is going to enforce the laws or implement them. And the judicial branch will decide cases under the law. I would suggest to you that this perspective that we have is oversimplified, and it always has been. Uh, one of the greatest American presidents early on in the history of our culture said the chief justice has issued his decision now let him enforce it, indicating that uh, he himself was going to act in a manner consistent with full validity for the decision of that particular court. Uh, increasingly, however, and this is particularly the case since the uh, uh, early part of the 20th century, all three branches of government are issuing law in one form or another, and they are jockeying for influence and position. Again, it is what it is. We can spend time protesting and saying this shouldn't happen, 
or we can get to the point of understanding what is going on and taking action to represent Christ and his church as it is and in the face of the government that exists. And maybe it shouldn't be the case. But again, we need to understand what we're dealing with. Legislative law is still enacted, no question about that. Uh, The legislative branches will conduct investigation. They will exercise influence over the appointment of appellate judges. Yeah, the legislature still is around. Note carefully, as a biblical Christian, as a biblically-minded Christian, the one type of law you do not see represented in Scripture, and I may be overlooking something, I don't think I am, uh, is legislatively passed law. Now, increasingly, and particularly in the state of California, uh, and this can often be due to conflicting lobbyists, uh, you create a system of legislative inertia. Nothing is getting done in the legislature. And it's been as a result of that that significantly over the last uh, 50 years, here in California at least, we've started to see law emerge from the process of the public initiative. Those of you that are old enough to own property here in California and remember the late uh, 60s, early 70s, will know the term Prop 13. Prop 13 has made it possible uh, for many people to own real estate here in California without uh, crippling tax burdens being imposed arbitrarily by local government. But that came out of the public initiative process. In a manner consistent with Exodus 18 and Numbers 27, 1 through 11, and 36, 1 through 12, you may want to take a look at these later, um, Scripture allows for appellate law. Now, we within Bible-believing, conservative, fundamental Christian circles sometimes wrestle with that because some of the decisions have not been in our best interest. We've not agreed with them. But the fact of the matter is, uh, from the beginning of the history of law, uh, court-made law has been a continual part of the process. We may want them to be more restrained, but inevitably, under some circumstances, they will have to issue court-made appellate law. Uh, So don't be surprised, don't get upset if you hear that the U.S. Supreme Court is issuing a decision. This is part of the process, and it has been from the beginning of the scriptures. Something else that has been taking place, over the last 120 years, there has been an increasing emergence of what we would know today as administrative law. This is law made by branches of the executive portion of our government. The president will appoint and has established, and I don't know that anybody really quite knows uh, the number of administrative federal agencies that we have, Securities Exchange Commission, Federal Communication Commission, Environmental Protection Agency, only to name a few. They will issue regulations. Those regulations typically are promulgated. They allow for public comment. And if there is no public comment, they will assume the force of law. Um, We may not like what they do. I came across one scholar earlier this weekend 
uh, who's of the position that much of what they do may be uh, and should be considered unconstitutional. But again, it is what it is. It is a reality of ongoing life. The courts have, and there's case law to the effect, uh, that substantial deference will be given to the positions articulated uh, by the leadership of administrative agencies. And again, this is not uh, totally without biblical precedent. Uh, David in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 21 through 25, uh, articulates a rule that if you compare it in its modern structure, would be an administrative regulation. The situation was uh, he is on the virtue of mutiny. Uh, The women and children of his band uh, have been captured while he and his men were out on a raid. Uh, The property has been taken away. He is virtually, he's on the verge of being stoned Uh, And the scripture tells us he strengthened himself in the Lord. He prayed, he considered what to do. Uh, Eventually they pursue, and they pursue at such an intense pace that a portion of the men can't go any further. Some of the men were in a little bit better physical condition than they go with David. Eventually they uh, totally defeat the people that had stolen uh, their property, their women, and their children question is raised by some of the uh, people, and uh, the text basically refers to them as sons of Belial. Uh, they, they want to articulate the position that the men who did not continue through the entirety of the pursuit should only get their wives and children back, but none of their property. David says no to those who stand with the supplies and to those who conduct the pursuit, there will be share and share alike. Uh, If you're a military uh, thinker, what he's really doing is saying we have to maintain our base of supply uh, if we're going to be at all effective in the future in terms of military operation. The text in the scripture says that from this point on, It was considered to be a statute and a rule governing in Israel. Today we would look at that as a regulation. The problem that we deal with now, uh, and Dr. Mueller has pointed this out in his book, We Cannot Be Silent, is the issue of facially neutral regulation. End of quote. Facially neutral regulation or regulations that are articulated in a manner that sounds like they're even-handed and applied to all. But if you look at them carefully and you understand what's going on, will really have only impact on Bible-believing Christians. It is such a regulation that was behind the action taken that led to the Supreme Court decision just recently issued, Masterpiece Cake Shop Limited versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Facially neutral regulations applicable to all, but when you consider what's going on here, it had a disproportionate impact on conservative Bible-believing Christians. And it was precisely because of the hostility demonstrated there that Justice Kennedy overruled the action taken. Guess what? It's even more complicated, and it has been since 1948. 1948, at about the time that the United Nations... Uh, was founded, you had the issuance of a document referred to 
as the universal declaration of human rights. Type it into Google at some point, uh, and you'll see that it has a certain similarity uh, to the Bill of Rights. This is only the beginning of a number of pacts, a number of treaties, uh, a number of documents that over the course of the last 70 years uh, have begun to emerge as an ongoing uh, source of international law. We as Christians, by and large, are oblivious to that. If you were around in the 70s, you'll remember that the idea of international law tended to be synonymous with one world government. And we thought of the Big Ten, the European common market. Okay? It's a little more sophisticated that. Uh, international law may provide opportunities opportunities for us to expand the reach of the gospel. Uh, there are privileges articulated in international law that by and large uh, are being ignored by the nations that uh, uh, persecute Christians in Asia, without mentioning any names, and sometimes elsewhere. Uh, there are challenges here. And we dodged a cannonball. You've heard the expression, dodging a bullet. We dodged a cannonball uh, approximately 2011. There was an effort being made by the Islamic world uh, to essentially define as part of persecution of religion any attempt to proselytize. Put another way, if you were attempting to evangelize a Muslim with the claims of the gospel, the effort was being made to create an international law position that would hold that that is in some ways persecution that should be prohibited. By and large, believers were totally unaware that this was taking place at that particular time. It did not pass. Uh, we may eventually see some reemergence, but we do need to be aware that that can exist. What's the call? For some within the church to comprehend the increasing complexity of government. 1 Corinthians tells us there will not be many among you who understand this, but there will be some. We need to pray that God will raise up individuals within the church who understand and are able to speak to this, who are able to represent the church at all areas and in all aspects of government. We need to pray uh, that there will be Christians serving in various aspects of government, able to honor Christ. And this is true. You see this in the New Testament where Paul refers to those who are in Caesar's household. Okay? It's not without biblical precedent. We need to pray that God will raise up Christian legal parachurch organizations that are staffed with knowledgeable and skilled individuals able to represent the church at those times. Uh, we also are seeing this some to some degree already, legislative chaplain ministries. Um, most all of the state legislators, legislatures uh, in the United States have already a chaplain provided by one or more ministries. They may or may not receive uh, official funding. More likely than not, it's through private donation. But we need to have men and 
women in the legislature and government provided this type of appropriate and acceptable counsel. So much prayer is needed. One other area that we want to talk about, and I think we've got uh, some 20 minutes left, there's a certain uncertainty as to the church's mission. We've already been talking about this to some degree already. Since at least the early 20th century, uh, many within the church had tried to pursue a polarized approach. Those who were quote-unquote liberals, more accurately referred to as apostates, uh, who were denying some of the major doctrines of the faith, were attempting to justify their existence within the church. So as a result, they got behind the term the social gospel. And they ran with that. They tried to say, you know, we're here attempting to create the kingdom of earth, a kingdom of heaven on earth. Uh, We want to imitate the character of Christ and create a biblical environment. And they forgot the doctrines that really must be present for true Orthodox Christianity to occur. In reaction, unfortunately, and sometimes perhaps due to a tolerance of sin within their own ranks, uh, some within the church went to the other extreme. And they said, we're just going to teach the old rugged cross, the authority of Scripture, the fundamentals. And we want to avoid anything that would smack of the social gospel. Well, the Bible knows of nothing other than a gospel that will have social implications. It is not a false dichotomy of either this or that. It is both in proper priority and in proper proportion. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, that's the word chesed, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? I would submit to you uh, that without walking humbly with your God, this is the key aspect of being regenerate, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn, for they and they alone, as Dr. MacArthur has pointed out, will be comforted. Without that in place, you will never be able to truly walk with mercy and to seek justice on a continuing, ongoing basis. It is a priority that goes to the nature of man, It is a priority that views the pragmatic reality of the greater magnitude of the eternal over the temporal. Uh, The story is told by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, if I'm not mistaken, it's in his uh, masterpiece on the Sermon on the Mount. William Wilberforce is meeting with some believers, and in that group there was a woman who wasn't perhaps the brightest light on the tree. Uh, Wilberforce, as you probably are aware, was the individual, the British parliamentarian, uh, who led the British Parliament uh, under the mentoring of John Newton in the abolition, abolition of the British slave trade. Well, he also was involved in passing a number of other laws, 
But he's in this uh, small group and he's talking about what they had accomplished in ending the British slave trade. The lady walks up to him afterward and she says, I know Mr. Wilberforce, but what about their souls? I know, but what about their souls? We can take the step of ending abortion. But what about their souls? The priority of the eternal must be always recommended and recognized as paramount in what we're doing. Again, this doesn't say that we don't take action to combat abortion upon demand. It does say that our priority always must be the presentation of the gospel that changes man eternally. We proclaim the authority of Scripture. We proclaim the deity of Christ. We call to repentance. We call to saving faith. We call to eternal life. We call to regeneration. We recognize that some, and usually only some within the church, will be uniquely gifted to carry out missions of mercy. Not everyone is called to be able to serve in the arena of government. Not everyone is called to be able to walk into a court and represent the church. But we recognize that God will establish and usually call some to work in that position. More than that, again, we recognize that only when man is regenerate will he be consistently able to humbly understand. Here we're back at Micah 6, 8 again. Only when he is born again will he be able to walk humbly Will he be able to understand and will he be able to implement God's passion for mercy? All of us, to some degree, should share that passion for mercy. All of us, to some degree, should also share God's passion for justice. If we hear of an unjust action by any court of law, by any government, it should strike a chord of that's just wrong within us. But we have to remember only some of us may be able to act in a manner that opposes that or challenges that. We recognize that our priority is always the call of the gospel. Co-belligerence. I was about to end, and then I thought that yesterday we've got to ask the question. Can we work together? Can we work together with other people in our community to see or pursue social change? This has been a question that has been around for a number of years, uh, and I'm going to cite two examples here, one that shows the problem and one that shows the right way to do it. Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 1994. This was a document that was signed off on by a number of people, many of whom were respected, uh, and they should have been much more careful in what they read. Because in the phrasing of that doctrine, in the phrasing of that document, it was basically stated that you can become a Christian by multiple ways. You can become a Christian by the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone. Or the idea was that you could become a Christian by the sacramental doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. It was signed, it was phrased in such a way that if you signed that, you endorsed that. 
Now walk away from that and try to maintain a consistently clear proclamation of the gospel. It can't happen. In doing that, they compromised in a way that is totally unacceptable. Right about the same time, however, uh, the Christian Legal Society was involved in litigation in a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. The case was the Church of Lakumi Babalu I, Inc. versus City of Hialeah. City of Hialeah had outlawed leaving animal corpses and entrails lying around on the sidewalk. What was going on here? They were dealing with a practice of the church known as Santeria. Translate voodoo. The Christian Legal Society, and some people have a hard time understanding why this would happen, files and friend of the court brief in support of the voodoo church. Why? Because the same test for religious freedom that applies to the Baptists will also apply to the Catholics. The same criteria that is articulated by the court applying to the voodoo church will also apply to Bible-believing fundamental Christians. And what they were doing was not coming along and endorsing the validity of the theology of that group. They were coming alongside and saying, court, you need to rule in a certain way that would in fact be favorable to them precisely because it should be favorable in that way to all believers. So in that sense, that is an illustration of co-belligerence that can be acceptable when it is without compromise of the doctrine taught or the deity and lordship of Christ. So yes, so long as we do not compromise or confuse our message in the minds of the onlooking world, there is a certain amount of co-belligerence, okay? Not a problem with those provisos. Now, what is the call? The call to action. I came across this uh, In May, I was uh, at Southern Seminary for its graduation. A relative of mine was getting her doctoral degree. And I came across this. I am not a Southern Baptist, never have been, don't intend to ever be, but I think in this situation, they got it totally correct. The Christian and the social order. This is something they had adopted in 2000. All Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ Supreme in our own lives and in human society. Note this next sentence. Means and methods used for the improvement of society and the establishment of righteousness among men can be truly and permanently helpful only when they are rooted in the regeneration of the individual by the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. You have that priority of the eternal, that priority of the proclamation of the gospel. In the spirit of Christ, Christians should oppose racism, every form of greed, selfishness, and vice, and all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, homosexual activity, and pornography. Totally fine, totally in agreement with that. We should work to provide for the orphaned, the needy, the abused, the aged, the helpless, and the sick. We should speak on behalf of the unborn 
and contend for the sanctity of all human life from conception to natural death. We oppose unwarranted abortion upon demand. We also oppose euthanasia. No, no problem with that. But then this next clause here, every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love in order to promote these ends. Christians should be ready to work with all men of goodwill in any good cause, always being careful to act in the spirit of love without compromising their loyalty to Christ and their loyalty to his truth. That's the calm. That's where we need to see ourselves focused. There should be no reason, there should be no need for uncertainty on the part of the church as to its mission. All right, let's, uh, we have about 10 minutes left before the hour. Any questions? And please, questions alone. Yes, sir. And, and just for the sake of uh, congregation and fellowship, tell me your name. Spencer. Yes. Quite frankly, I can't think of any one entity that would meet the description that you uh, have made. Um, be closely attentive to the news. You have the opportunity through the internet now to be able to be obtaining information far beyond what uh, has ever been in previous history. Uh, but I am not aware. Doug, can you think of anything? You might be careful even in that regard because sometimes, remember the old proverbial story of the sundial, it gets it right two times in the course of a day. Uh, sometimes even the ACLU can get a particular issue right. So don't look at it and let that and that alone move you away. Look closely at the issue and think through what it is from a biblical perspective. But uh, Doug uh, is a good person to talk to if you have any further questions on that. Doug Glaser, by the way, folks. Right here, sir? Uh, yeah. uh, Tell me your name. You? My name is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Uh, hi. Are you advocating more education in law and politics for Christians? For some, yes. And urging more Christians to join active politics and the election of government office. If they are able to do so without loss of integrity on a personal level, I would definitely say so. It depends on what they're going to encounter at the time. Uh, we may have moved to such a point in our culture where it is almost prohibitively impossible for that to be occurring. Uh, I would say the presence of Mike Pence 
and the office of the vice president may indicate otherwise. Uh, but in terms of getting involved in political activity, I believe Christians should do that as an outgrowth and only as an outgrowth of their gospel commitment. Okay? Why is it that we don't have Bible-believing Christians on local school boards in many cases? That's an opportunity. Uh, why is it that we don't have more Bible-believing Christians? And there are some in the legislature. Uh, we have a, a legislator here in California, his family, his sister is involved quite a bit here and he has attended here on occasion. Uh, so there are some. But uh, I would like to see more, again, only in proper priority in their own personal lives, and again, without loss of personal integrity. Okay, there's a question back here. Tell me the name. Yes, Lee. I see Lee at Grace to You. Uh, AB 2943, if you weren't here last week, if you're not already aware of this, uh, AB 2943 is legislation currently uh, before, it's actually, it grew out of the state assembly, it's now in the state senate, uh, and the impact of that would be that if you are counseling an individual that he or she can change their gender preference, and you collect a fee, uh, you could be finding yourself on the receiving end of a lawsuit under the state's anti-fraud statutory civil remedies provision. Uh, his question was, will the separation of church and state factor into that? I don't necessarily think so. Uh, I think that it very likely, if it is challenged and goes up the ladder, uh, to the U.S. Supreme Court could find itself uh, on the receiving end of a decision similar to what took place uh, in the bakery case. Because, and we've argued this. Um, as I indicated last week, a gentleman who is here, uh, myself and Dr. MacArthur, worked together on a letter for the legislature that we've argued that that statute demonstrates a hostility to Christians and to Christianity of an orthodox nature, that is totally unacceptable. Yes, back here. Name, please. Marty. Hi, Marty. Yes. Anything's possible, Marty. Um, as I mentioned last week, there is a case, and really this is the only one that I've been able to substantially uh, confirm. It grew out of Sweden. A man by the name of Ahe Green was prosecuted for doing precisely that. He was a Pentecostal preacher, and he was preaching from Romans chapter 1. Uh, and he was prosecuted for hate speech. He was convicted. It went up the ladder to the uh, Swedish Supreme Court, and the Swedish Supreme Court 
said that under Swedish law there was sufficient evidence there to confirm the conviction. However, and this illustrates uh, the emergence of international law, the court said that in view of the developing nature of European law as a whole, uh, it would not be sustainable. So they overturned the conviction. Now I have heard that similar actions have been taken in Canada. I'm not sure yet that I've seen that fully confirmed or fully uh, resolved. Canada, like the United States, also has a high court, and sometimes it takes a while for it to play itself out. Yes. Yes, ma'am? Hi. Yes. So what is the, the right of a Christian if you work in a workplace that lost their uh, moral integrity and moral responsibility to society? Well, you don't have to stay working there. Yeah. You can always leave. Yes, um, but You need to, and you and I have talked about this before. She comes up and talks to me after a worship service. Um, okay. You may need to make an appropriate notice. Okay. I'm just telling you some of the possible actions that can be taken. You may need to file an appropriate claim with the regulatory agency. Letters work fine. Oftentimes they have a form on their internet site. Uh, but there are things that can be done, but you need to count the cost before you do that. You may find yourself needing to obtain employment elsewhere. Uh, you need to proceed wisely. Uh, when Christ uh, is talking to the disciples, he said, I send you out, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Seek the protection and wisdom of the Lord in each situation. Good question. I don't think I've heard the last from you on that particular issue. Uh, any other questions? All right. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do want to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We want to be salt and light representing you. Lord, we know that we are not going to create the kingdom of heaven on earth. We know that your word says evil men will go from bad to worse as we near the time of your return. We would say even now, Lord, come quickly. And yet, Lord, in the time between now and the time of that return, may we be found faithful to represent you in a manner pleasing to the Lordship of Christ and demonstrating the wisdom that only you and you alone can provide. May we walk humbly with our God and may we love justice and mercy in an according manner. Amen.